you found the Digging Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. Don't forget, you can help out the show by leaving us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, I invite you to join us over on Twitter and Facebook. You can follow the show at Digging Oak Island. Right. Thank you, everybody, for sticking with us last week. Without a new episode of The Curse of Oak Island, I thought it was a good time to take a little kind of weak breather here and uh, take a little R&R. We didn't have a new show, a new episode of the show, but we did have a new Maddie Blake special, this one focusing on the life and times of Dave Blankenship, who is no longer part of the dig team, no longer part of the cast. We'll get to that in a little bit. Um so let's get right to catching up with some of our emails and messages uh, that we got over the last couple of weeks. I have one, that, some that came in since the airing of this past week's episode. We'll get to them next week because some of them have something to do with that. Uh, but we got a lot to catch up with in the last couple of weeks. So let's start off with an email from Gloria who writes, honestly, it does not matter to me whether you write a script or not. If you did not say, I probably could not tell the difference. Now is the new normal, so do whatever works for you. I agree with the guy who wrote about wrote in about the power poll. That's what I thought it looked like to best regards, Gloria. Gloria, uh, I'm glad you mentioned this first because um, that little first bit there because we're going to do this for a little bit while longer, or at least until my kid goes back to school on a full-time basis, but that seems like it may actually be happening uh, sooner rather than later, so it's possible but I can indeed get back to a nicer, more polished-sounding uh, monologue here than just the ramblings of a podcaster. Also, the further on that little bit about the uh, power pole, which she's referring to a piece of wood taken out at the end of a show, big deal made, large timber, uh, pieces of iron sticking out of the other side. We had a right, uh, listener write in and point out that this was probably an old power pole, and that's exactly what it looked like. And now, the further and further we get from that discovery... With no follow-up, uh, we haven't cleaned it up, we haven't seen it, uh, you know, a better picture of or anything like that. Uh, I think we can assume that unless we hear something else, that this was nothing groundbreaking or even not anything related to the search. This happens over and over again with this show, and it's very frustrating for me, and, and I'm sure it's frustrating for a lot of you. There are so many times where we make a big deal about a find and then we don't mention it again. And, um, you know, that just means that they wanted you to get excited about something. They wanted you to leave thinking something was mysterious and strange, even though they know that it's not. It's kind of a decision made for the betterment of the show rather than for you to get a better idea of the evidence here and come to your conclusions. You know, that's secondary in their minds. Let's be honest with you. Uh, it's not. Um, again, this is not a criticism of the show. Um, I mean, I guess it is, but I, I'm, I've gotten used to it over the years, and it's just not something that bothers me. And I think that's what we have here. I think we have a piece of a power pole, looked really cool. Nobody knew what it was until they pulled it out, talked about it, and thought about it a little bit more. And there's just no, that's just not exciting, right? To hear that it's nothing important. They only very occasionally tell us that something really wasn't all that big a deal. Mostly, they just leave it for us, for our imagination to run wild. Uh, anyway, let's go on. Thank you, Gloria. We now have one from Jesse, who um, he's got, Jesse's got this great habit of making me laugh with his emails, especially ones he writes during the show. Anyway, 
He writes, you got off light last week. Bring your A game for this week's podcast. Well, Jesse, I hate to say this, uh, but I don't think I have an A game here. (laughs) So you're just going to get my normal C plus type of show. I have some A games. Those are when I can sit down and write things and really put some time into one episode. I'm really happy with the Captain Kid stuff we did in the past and some of the some of the uh, interviews I did where the uh, interviewee is the person who really brings the A game, not me. Uh, anyway, <laughs> thanks again. Great to hear from you, Jesse. Let's go to a listener named Nate who writes, let me preface this. I definitely lean more skeptic and pessimistic. The question, the stone pathway on Oak Island, is it possible that they are only a beach? The beaches on Oak Island and in the area are generally very rocky, and those would have small rocks. Being a beach, they would be very level. It's possible that the swamp used to be open to the ocean, something they acknowledge. Is it possible they are just looking at what used to be a very rocky beach? Please prove me wrong, but it's been nagging me at watching this most recent episode. Thanks, Nate. Nate, a couple episodes back, there was this great scene uh, over at a feature on the northern side of the island called the Boulderless Beach. And here, the producers actually showed us the team walking from what is not the Boulderless Beach, from the regular beach, to the Boulderless Beach. And you can see the big difference between the two. And when you look at a non-dug-up, I mean, we, we normally only see Smith's Cove, which has been worked and reworked and dug and pile-drived and all sorts of things. This little section of beach that we saw in that one scene, we saw what the beach really looks like. And you're absolutely 100% right. It's a lot of small stones. It planes upward towards the middle of the island, just like all beaches do. Um, There's a lot about it that makes sense. I think in order for me to say that you're right or wrong, and I don't think you're off, off beat here at all, but... Uh, I need to see more of it revealed and all of it revealed. Currently, there's two things that make me think that this is not a natural formation. First, the non-randomness of the rock sizes. If you look at the beaches on Oak Island, there are some really big stones. There are some little stones. There's all sorts of randomness to it, which is, you know, part of nature, right? Um, This doesn't seem to have that. Now, these aren't all uniform size, but they're certainly not the huge difference in sizes and colors and shapes and stuff as you see on the beaches in uh, Oak Island. That's the first thing. But again, you're seeing these little glimpses of this, so it's hard really to know that for sure. It also appears to have an edge to it. And the first stone pathway or whatever they called it, the paved area from last year, you actually saw a part where they dug out next to it and they gave a very rectangular shape to it. And this week's, this one that we're seeing now seems to have the same sort of rectangular bordering to it. It doesn't, <laughs> you know, it doesn't prove to me that it is rectangular. It's just kind of what I see here and it's hard kind of Without getting a good full overview of everything, it's hard to kind of have a full grasp of all of this. I'm, you know, Nate, I'm with you. I'm always looking for what we would call the natural explanation to some of these things. Um, and I think there could very well still be one here. I don't know yet. And that's kind of where I am. So let's just hold on to that. And Nate, come back to me at the end of the season and tell me if you still think the same thing. I think that's the best way to approach this. Again, thank you, Nate, for the question. Uh, I like the way you're thinking. I I, I think that that's kind of, you know, we need to 
cast aside all possible natural explanations before we can start talking about Knights Templars or clandestine British military operations or whatever you might think. Um, you know, keep them coming, Nate. Uh, let's go now to Rebecca, who writes, Hi, Dave, love the podcast. In your most recent installment, which was the last one, uh, digging in their heels, you question whether Joe Landry had expertise outside of bookbinding. Well, I did a little research, and Joe has many advanced degrees in many things. Attached is his list of them, and she sent me this fantastic list of Joe Landry's academic achievements. And, uh, and anyway, <laughs> she continues, you'll notice that he has a degree in conservation. Obviously, his main focus is books and binding, but I would definitely trust his opinion much more than the numismatist they featured a few episodes ago. Hope this helps Rebecca in Tennessee. Rebecca, it absolutely does help. Thank you very much. Uh, After I got your email, I listened back to the old show, to the show that you're referring to, and I could tell I I definitely made a bigger deal out of this than I meant to. I kind of was more curious about why you would bring a doorknob to a numismatist who's a coin collector. Um, that And I kind of conflated the two a little too much. I think what I was trying to get to was that perhaps, even though Joe Landry does have these degrees and is an expert in something, my thought was that maybe they could have expanded the search out for experts beyond him, uh, beyond somebody whose focus really is books and binding, as you say, uh, and find somebody who's focused in something that fit more the subject, which I think was the boot heel at the time. Um Anyway, yeah, I mean, Joe Landry is obviously a, a, an incredibly learned man and, and you know, knows his old leather for sure. Uh, and thank you so much for pointing that out. I think uh, we definitely deserve to put that in there for Joe's sake. Um, I'm glad you, you know, and also uh, you gave me the chance to sort of correct the record here a bit. Uh, again, I didn't mean to make that big a deal about Joe. I think my focus was more towards some of the other things they've done in this season. Anyway. Let's turn now to Jeff, who, after writing some very kind words about the podcast, thank you so much for that, Jeff, he asks, uh, do you think Rick and Marty have resigned themselves that there is no treasure to be found? I think at some point they'll need to show uh, the the show to continue the search to drastically reduce their personal financial risk. Okay, Joe, so how how I'm interpreting what you're saying here is that you think that sooner or later, Craig, Marty, and Rick are going to come to the conclusion that they're not going to recover uh, something of enough value to pay for all of this stuff. So therefore, the show, the producers, the History Channel, Prometheus, are going to have to take over the financial end of it in order to continue it. Well, I'm not so sure that hasn't happened yet. <laughs> uh, I think it may have. Well, first, let's let's do this. When you look back at season one, Okay, which is great. I mean, if you haven't watched season one, if you're new to the show and you haven't watched season one, go back and watch those first few episodes. It's amazing the difference in scope here, right? Um, and I think you can tell from there, in those first that first season or two, that what you had was a couple of guys with a camera following around people who were doing a project that existed and was going to happen with or without the cameras there, that Rick and Marty and Craig were funding this and this is what they were doing, right? Things have changed quite a bit in this. And I think we can conclude, in fact, I know, that the producers or the show or whoever the big corporate television environment or uh, conglomerate is, is indeed contributing quite a bit to what we're seeing here as far as the actual work being done. Now, the guys are always very, very, what's the word, guarded 
about this. I've seen several interviews, several roundtable discussions and, uh, you know, lecture series type things with Rick or Marty, usually Marty, uh, where this question is always asked. And he kind of hints that, yep, there's there's a partnership here, but that he's not going to talk anymore about it. Uh, He does not like to discuss it and they're not saying what it is. Okay, I think what we can say is that right now, at this point, the dig and what's going on, the activity going on reflects the popularity of the show, right? As as we got more viewers, you get more advertising dollars. As you got more viewers, that became more popular and more visitors came to the island. There was more merchandise sales. So on both ends, both Marty and Rick's, the Lagina's end, and on the end of of Prometheus, it makes sense to keep investing in the show. So more money brought in means more money to dig huge holes. And I think that's what hap- what's happened here. I don't think there's any question about that. Um, I think if you give them both truth serum, both Rick and Marty, they would say something like the hunt is now for the truth of what happened here. The hunt is for the history, right? To un to unveil what really went on. What is all this stuff that happened here on Oak Island that we seem to have no record of? And that the hunt is no longer really for a chest of gold or the lost manuscripts of Shakespeare or the Ark of the Covenant or something like that. I mean, those are all possibilities. Those are all, you know, (laughs) dreams and that kind of stuff. But that they really are, and they say this too, that they really are now looking for what really happened. And that is the aim of the show and the purpose of the dig at this point. So I guess what I'm saying is not only do I think your point is true, I think you're seeing it. Right before your very eyes. Um, these, this is, this is, seems to be what's happening here. Anyway, thank you so much, Jeff. Uh, certainly a pleasure to have you as part of the show, as always. Let's go to our old friend now, Matt in Pennsylvania, who, if you recall, a few weeks back in this uh, email section, he questioned the validity of the imaginary line found uh, by Corey and Mole and Chris Morford, two researchers that we've seen on the show, the line that connects... Nolan's Cross with the Palace at Versailles and then further on to the Temple Mount, I believe. Uh, this week he writes, Hey Dave, thanks for addressing my questions about the Versailles theory a few, week, few episodes back. Please tell the researchers I really appreciate their, their in-depth response. I actually sent, if you don't remember, I actually sent Matt's email over to Corian Mall, who sent back this huge response full of information. Go ahead and listen to that. I think he had to go back about three weeks for that one. It was nice, he continues, it was nice to see the episode on Dave Blankenship. He has an incredible story, and I'm glad he is doing well. It did remind me of a question I have, though. I vividly remember Dan Blankenship showing Rick Lagina a fragment of gold chain that he claimed came out of 10X. Do you have any recollection of this chain or any of the artifacts that allegedly came out of 10X? I looked for the scene in the past episodes, but I couldn't find it. Anyway, keep up the good work, brother. Matt in Havertown. Matt, great to hear from you again. All right. Um, first, uh, I completely agree with you about the show on Dave Blankenship. I thought it was great. I thought it was a very appropriate tribute to Dave's life and his work on Oak Island. He has a fascinating story, a very human story that uh, I think a lot of us can relate to. Um, we now know for sure, as these things get constantly asked on social media, I mean, if you are member of one of these huge Oak Island groups, you hear this question over and over and over again. Uh, Is Dave alive? Is he well? Does he still live on Oak Island? Did he quit? Did he retire? Any of this kind of stuff? Well, Dave is alive and well. He's still on Oak Island. Uh, He is retired from the work and he plans on doing a lot of traveling. (laughs) Now, listen, 
I'm not blind to this stuff. Those who follow Dave on social media will question whether this, what we heard here, was the whole story, as Dave has come out and said other things, said that he, I believe he said he quit due to issues with the producers and the direction of the show, but he didn't say that here on this show, and I'm sure he was given the opportunity. Um, If he wasn't, he agreed to do this show without taking that opportunity. So I I don't know what it says. Uh, If anybody here is a friend of Dave, or Dave, if you're listening, I would love to have you come on the show and tell us what happened. Here's the thing. The last thing of all of this stuff that I'm interested in (laughs) is the drama on Oak Island between whoever and whoever. um, You know, I would be doing this reading, I would be doing this research were it not for the show. And as much as I love the show, and it's such a huge part now of the Oak Island mystery, um, I just think there's more to cover than this, than why or why not Dave left the show. I'm just going to leave it at what we heard on this show out of his own mouth. That's how I'm going to leave it. Uh, I Listen, I love Dave, just like everybody else. He was so much so entertaining to watch. He had such a great perspective on all this. You know, it's not about... Um, finding books or artifacts. It's not about finding history. He wanted money. He wanted treasure. That's what him and his dad were in it for. And, and uh, you know, I, I love that kind of view he had. Now, as far as the 10X thing is go, uh, 10X thing is uh, re- goes here. Um, I'm not 100% sure I recall that scene that you're talking about here. So I'll leave it out to you, you the listeners. Do you guys remember this? Uh, do you remember where it is? And maybe I can go back and take a look at it. As far as I recall, Dan found what I would call sort of metal fragments. I don't recall them being gold. I, I, I just that doesn't stick out to me as something that I, I don't I don't remember that anywhere. So being I am only a podcaster and really don't have all this information at the tip of my tongue here, um, I reached out to Doug Kroll, who is incredibly nice and amazingly helpful for this show. I can't tell you how many times I've asked Doug a question that you guys have given to us, um, and he's answered it for us. And Doug told me that there no no gold chains, no links or anything like that were found from 10X, that Dan had fragments of iron links. Um, there was, apparently, there was a gold chain found in the McInnes Foundation back in the 70s, which would have been something in um, Dan's time. So that might account for some of your confusion. Um, but no, he did not. Apparently, this was iron links, according to Doug Kroll. Uh, so there you go. Uh, <laughs> thank you for the question. Always great to hear from you, Matt. And thank you, Doug, for answering it for me, because God knows I couldn't. Uh, let's go now to Jeremy down in Alabama, who asks... Now, I know I'm not the brightest crayon in the box. Hey, join the club, Jeremy. Um, And I don't know a ton about the technical side of treasure hunting. After watching the guys try to follow the stone pathway and dig as they go, would it make sense to let GPR get the vast amount of searching done for the pathway, considering it's just below the surface and would show up beautifully on GPR, I'd think? Just a thought. Thanks, Dave. Love the show. Jeremy. Jeremy, it would be incredibly irresponsible of me to pose here as some sort of expert on GPR. Um, but I'm not sure they can do that, do the kind of scan you're talking about without first draining the swamp, uh, which they've done now. So is that something we might do before the end of the year? Who knows? Also, I'm not entirely sure that they might not have done it already off camera just to kind of get them to lay the land here and point them in the right direction. They seem to have a really good idea of where they're going, right? Um, so... I think there's more information that they have that they're not relaying to us, the viewer. 
um, because, you know, there's only 43 minutes in a show or something like that that they can do, and they take a lot of that kind of stuff out. Um, I know that they're obviously looking at other things. I think they, I mean, I know that they've taken drone photos. I know that there's LIDAR data invo- involved here. Um, so it's easy to see that GPR would also be part of all that, and they just haven't mentioned it to us. So let's see. Let's see if at the end of the season, if we uh, get anything on that or any idea of what that might be, um, or if they, if we actually see somebody come in and, and do it. I mean, it would be a great idea, especially when there's so much thought about tunnels coming out of there and all that kind of stuff, right? So it's, uh, it's something I would imagine we would like to see done soon. I know they have the seismic scanning, um, which gives them a picture of something, uh, but I don't recall them doing a GPR of the entire swamp. Uh, and I don't know if those two things overlap each other in some way. Hard to say. Anyway, thank you so much. Now, let's go to Mike on Facebook who writes, Could the stone path road just be somewhat modern way to traverse the swamp before the current road that borders it? It looks as if it could have been built by hauling loads of rocks in a, and dumped in place. Have they proved its age? Am I just missing that detail? Thanks, Mike. Uh, from Chickamauga, Georgia. Uh, Mike, they have not aged it definitively just yet, but hang on. <laughs> I'm sure they're going to before the end of this season, right? Uh, They're obviously working towards that goal now, and those type of things are usually saved for the end of the season. Um, And plus, they're still digging here at this point. We're still looking at stuff being taken out. And what the Swamp Doctor has done is he's found pieces of wood or what have you stuck in between these rocks, and then therefore he can remove those things and date those things, and then therefore date when the rock fell on top of the one fell on top of the other, right? I mean, that's kind of makes a lot of sense. Um, So we need that information, I think, before I can jump to any conclusions about what this is, whether it's modern or how or why it was built or by whom, any of that kind of stuff. Um, Hopefully, again, that's something we will know for sure by the end of the season. Well, that's going to do it for the emails. I know I have more coming. Just hang on. We're going to get to them next week. Uh, I know you've got a few more sent in. Just couldn't squeeze them all into this show. And if you have any questions, comments, anything you want to get on the record here on the podcast, you can email us at diggingoakisland at gmail.com. All right, so let's move on to talk about Season 8, Episode 13 of The Curse of Oak Island called The Fellowship of the Ringbolt. Is that what we're calling the group now? They're no longer the Fellowship of the Dig. We're now the Fellowship of the Ringbolt. I don't know which one I like better. Anyway, uh, this show is focused mostly around the swamp and the money pit subjects, right? Those two subjects. Uh, But there are two other places worth mentioning here. Uh, First is a trip by Doug Kroll and Scott Barlow up to see blacksmithing expert Carmen Legg. I think um, the fact that two Canadians, Doug and Scott, are doing this tells us something about when this may have actually taken place. Uh, Anyway, they're bringing him this piece of a lock found uh, by Gary Drayton on Lot 13 earlier in the season. I mean, just from looking at it, you can tell this is certainly a mechanical lock. It's hard to tell the age. Um... Carmen Legg says that it's double bolted, which once he points that out, you're like, yeah, there you go. And so that it was certainly kind of like a higher end product. And that makes sense to me. Um, you know, the more the more intricate it is, the more expensive it was, especially if it's something older. Um, 
you know, so what do we have now? We have a, a, a knob, a brass knob from off something. Now we have this lock for off something heavy duty. Uh, we might be building towards something here. Hard to say. Anyway, also, we headed back to a location on Oak Island in the show that I was really, really, really hoping <laughs> that we would see them return to this year. And that is Lot 25, where we can find the home of one Samuel Ball. Uh, now, We've talked a lot about Samuel Ball over the life of this podcast. And I don't want to repeat myself too much here just yet. Um, I'll give a kind of a rundown of him if we get back to it. Uh, this was only a very short scene. That's obviously setting up a lot more to come over the course of this year in this area. Um, so hopefully we'll have more reason to talk once again about this incredible guy that is Samuel Ball. If you want to learn more about him... Um, his life and his relationship to Oak Island and sort of the world he lived in and came to here. Uh, I would suggest listening, and you don't want to read up about him, but I would suggest listening to uh, my podcast from July 27th of this past year, 2020, called Freedom in Nova Scotia. I speak to an expert there, a historian, about um, the escaped slaves and the culture of that area um, and how Samuel Ball sort of fit into all of this. And then I do a little bit of a sort of life and times of him sort of at the end of that show. There's some other subjects covered there, but you get a lot of Samuel Ball. Um, so go have a listen to that. Now, with all that being said, there are a couple of things worth mentioning here from this scene uh, where we see Laird Niven continuing this project. He was the guy heading the project last year. And it's a very, very painstakingly slow project. Uh, they, they're recovering stuff, and they're very careful about all of this. The two archaeologists, and I can't remember who was there with him. I know it was Laird and somebody else. They mentioned that they're finding a lot of stuff at this point that I, th I think the phrase they used points us to the fact that Samuel Ball um, was indeed very successful and very well off. Now, I, I said I wasn't going to talk a lot about him, but again, this is an escaped slave who joined the British Army during the Revolution. And after the British lost the Revolution, he left the United States to start a new life in Nova Scotia. He came with nothing. Uh, and he left his home to join the British Army when he was just a boy. Uh, I mean, and I literally mean something like 12 or 14, <laughs> somewhere in that area. Um, and he ended up a very successful, um, well-off guy. Uh, and this is nothing but a Herculean feat for this person, like I said, who is a former slave who escaped to freedom and success in Oak Island. Um, this gives me the opportunity to mention before we get more into this how much I hate what I think <laughs> we're going to hear more about. There's this idea that floats around Samuel Ball that there's no way he could have been successful he had to have found the treasure. He had to have been part of Daniel McGuinness's plot or Daniel McGuinness's discoveries or, you know, the discoveries that he never told anybody about or, you know, they must have found some lot of treasure and God, he was had all this money. How could he have done this? Uh, and there's always this idea that that's the only way that Samuel Ball could have ended up being successful. And, and not simply because he was an incredibly smart, a very driven, and just a remarkable guy. Um, so I just <laughs> keep that in mind as we go forward, right? We're going to hear a lot about that with Samuel Ball and a lot of conclusions being jumped to about who he was and why he was successful. And there's no reason to believe any of that. 
um, it's just speculation at best. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention was uh, there was a tunnel <laughs> last year, tunnel feature that they examined. They stuck a camera through there, got a plumber to help them stick a camera through there uh, to see, and it kind of ended. And there's certainly a, a space down there. Uh, we were, I think we were earlier in the season talking about how we haven't gone back to this and why haven't we yet? And is it that they just didn't find anything? And it's good to hear that that's not the case, that we are actually getting back to this and that Laird Niven is going to continue looking into that. So hopefully, <laughs> fingers crossed, the Samuel Ball Foundation uh, and the story and life of Samuel Ball will become a big subject towards the end of this season. All right, let's head now to the money pit, one of the two sort of big subjects here. The, the Swamp is dominating really all of the season and did so in this episode as well, but we definitely are building towards something in the money pit. Um, here, our first mention of the money pit comes, um, and then the drilling project that's going on over there, comes in this war room meeting where we see Paul Troutman, who I think this was the first time we saw him this season, and we were wondering where he went. And also we see another of Rick and Marty's nephews. This is David Fernetti. Now, Fans of the show, people who are into these kind of things. Um, have we seen David before ever on the show? Is he new? Um, obviously, it must be Peter's brother. Uh, and this is, again, Rick and Marty's, I think, their sister's sons. Anyway, we see the group sitting around and they're speaking with um, via video conference with Dr. Krista Brousseau, a chemist uh, up in St. Mary's University, I believe. And uh, it's a small, they're talking to her about a small piece of a nail found in the hole named C9 from the last episode. If you recall, when we were talking on the podcast, I couldn't actually see what they were pointing at here, so <laughs> there obviously was something, and they sent it to her. Um, I can't really tell which piece in his hand was the nail. I mean, I think I know, but it seemed like a very small shard. Anyway, she looks at the chemical makeup of it, and from the, I think she said the manganese <laughs> manganese level, uh, there it appears to be more modern, meaning from sort of the early part of the 19th century on or sort of the I would say the you know the 1830s and on I think was the number they gave us um as I mentioned last time where they're looking for something called the Tupper shaft and they briefly talked about what this is you can go back and listen to last week's episode if you want to learn more about it uh, but it's a shaft that was dug very early on in the search when people knew who the money where the money pit was in fact when some of the original money pit discoverers were still alive and taking part and it was the first attempt to dig next to the money pit and then tunnel over sideways to try to get underneath the booby trap didn't work everybody almost died luckily they all escaped um, so later on as we head over to the money pit itself for some scenes over there, it appears that this Tupper shaft is really the focus of the drilling program now. And they're looking at this new hole. It's cool. I think they called it CD 8.5 that's being dug just in the same area as they're now kind of, you know, poking around to see where some of this wood might begin and end. They find at about 24 feet uh, what they call stacked lumber. So this is obviously a shaft that once was high up and dug straight down. Um, and it seems to be a searcher shaft for sure. Uh, hopefully 
they can date this wood kind of definitively, and then they can confirm that this is the Tupper shaft. So what does this mean, right? Now, later in the war room, another war room scene, they pretty much sit around and tell us this is what they're going to do. They're going to try to confirm that this is the Tupper shaft. So what does this all mean? Why does this make a difference? Um, they're not looking for the Tupper shaft, obviously. They're looking for treasure. Well, remember, and I say this, I think, just about every week, but remember what they're doing here at the Money Pit is they're trying to gather enough data to know where and how to conduct a big dig, okay? So many people know about Robert Dunfield. He dug a huge crater. We mention it all the time in the Money Pit area. And most people now look back at that and think, boy, he was way off and where he was trying to dig. A lot of people think that way. Well, Rick and Marty are obviously not trying to make that same mistake. They want to zero in on what they think is at least <laughs> within a few feet of the money pit before they start digging down and going through all of this because it's going to be a huge expense. Hey, listen, what happened to Robert Dunfield was he digged this huge hole. It filled full of water, nearly collapsed again. <laughs> made a very dangerous situation, Rick and Marty are going to do something very, very different, much safer, much more expensive. This isn't something that's being done just with backhoes and excavators. This is going to be a very expensive, huge project, and they want to make sure they get right where they're doing it. So this idea of finding the Tupper shaft where we know somebody dug within a few feet, 10 to 15 feet, they say 10 feet, but how how close could they really, how accurate do you think they really are by the time they got down to the bottom of the shaft, right? Um, they, they're going to find this thing and confirm that they're within 10 feet of the original money pit before they're going to start putting all of this money and effort into the big dig. It's time now to finish up over at the swamp, which has really been the focus of this season and is going to continue to be, I think, for the rest of the year. We start off the episode with Rick Lagina showing Tom Nolan, the son of uh, former treasure hunter and landowner, uh, Fred Nolan, who did a lot of work on the swamp. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, Rick is showing Tom the work being done in this new paved area that's been uncovered in recent weeks. Again, Tom's father, Fred, he was a landowner. He was involved with Dan Blankenship. Then there was a big feud, and Fred focused his attention on his lands, which did not include the money pit, but did include a lot of the swamp. So he focused a lot of effort uh, over his years searching in the swamp. Now, Rick calls over archaeologist Aaron Taylor to kind of help him update Tom on what they're finding here. And Taylor says that this paved area is, quote, a road leading up to the uplands, end quote. And he also mentions it could possibly, that this area could possibly have been a harbor, right? Now, Taylor also wants to know what is keeping the stones up, right? Why aren't they sinking into this very wet bog? So these are all kind of the things they're looking at here. He shows them a small piece of coal um, that he can fit in between his fingers. So it's not a big chunk. It's a little tiny piece of coal. And he says that they're finding quote-unquote, pounds of it <laughs> all around the paved area. He also finds what he calls cut stakes, these little stakes. Now, later, Rick is there with the swamp doctor, and he pulls out small pieces of wood 
that he calls an axe chip, which what he's referring to is as you're cutting a big log of wood with an axe, little chips come flying off. And he's finding that you could tell what they are because they're very thin. Um, and he's finding these little axe chips all over. So obviously somebody has been um, cutting <laughs> a lot of wood in this area uh, with an axe. And so... One of the reasons we know this is these quote-unquote chips from axes that they're finding, according to Spooner, everywhere. Now, this had me wondering, could the axe chips and could the char or the coal, now not charcoal, actual coal, be evidence of a pine tar kiln process or project, right? So we know a pine tar kiln was, was used to make tar, in um, the Europe before bottom paint existed and before copper sheathing and all that kind of stuff, you tarred the bottom of a boat to keep water from coming in, to keep things from growing on the bottom of the boat. Basically, you tarred everything to try to make it as watertight as you possibly could. Um, and we found what we believe is a pine tar kiln on Oak Island. So obviously, they were making it here. Could it possibly be that they were just, that this is all part of that project and not part of some, you know, I don't know, Knights Templar? treasure dig or something. So I reached out to Gordon Fader. He is the co-author of the book Oak Island Mystery Solved. Now this is the book which I'm sure a lot of you have read about or have heard about if you haven't read it yourself where they where Gordon Fader who is a marine geologist I think is the right word for him um, where he and his fellow author Joyce Steele have the theory that what we're looking at here is a massive clandestine marine project um, by the, or should say a naval project by the British Navy. So I asked him, could this coal possibly be used in a pine tar kiln? And he said they did not use coal in tar kilns. The wood was all they used and it produced the tar. But the British were doing lots of smelting of metals, glass, and other things that could have used coal. Also, it could be young and just got mixed up from all the digging. It can be dated, but would be millions of years old and not much help other than to identify where it came from. And that could be some good information. So thank you to Gordon Fader for helping us out with that one. Uh, he is definitely the expert on certainly this end of the subject here. As they examine the paving stones, uh, they're now also finding that there seems to be a layer of wood under some of the under these stones, some sort of foundation, really. And that's answering the question from before that Aaron Taylor had about why this entire thing isn't just sinking into the ground. Um, towards the end of the show now, we start to see Gary Drayton detecting. He's got his metal detector out, and he's finds what is clearly an old, like, it looks to me like a padlock or something like that. Now I'm going to need some follow-up before commenting on what this is. It was very dirty. Hard to tell how old it is. I have no idea. We'll see if we get back to it. Um Later on, Gary is back, and now this time he's detecting over on the eastern side of the swamp in the upland section, right just off the swamp. And he's there with Craig Tester, and he finds some strange iron object, which a couple of them said looks like a bracelet or a shackle. Um, it certainly looks like it's a circular object cut into two pieces, again, like a bracelet. Not sure what that is. Let's see if we follow up on that. It's kind of cool. But the find comes at the end here, the namesake of the show. As Gary's continuing, you know, metal detecting, this time he's with Billy Gerhardt, they get another hit, and Gary pulls out a long iron rod with what is clearly a ring bolt, 
at one end of the rod. And at the opposite end of the ring bolt, it looks splayed as if it were, you know, pushed into a wall or even a, a, a boulder or something so that it would anchor into it. It absolutely looked old. There's no doubt about that. Certainly not machine made. Just <laughs> look at some more modern ring bolts and you'll know why that is. This is an incredibly cool find. And let's go back to the aforementioned Fred Nolan. Fred did a lot of work in the swamp. He drained it or he attempted to. He pulled a lot of things out of there. And there are a few claims that he made. He found the scuppers of a ship, uh, stuff like that. He also claimed to have found more than one of these ring bolt type of things. I believe he said they were dug into or, or set into boulders. Now, the thought here is you find a humongous boulder, you drive a ring bolt into it, and then you can actually tie a ship to that ring bolt and basically anchor it. That's, that's the idea. That's what we're going at here. Now, Fred apparently found some of these and also appears to have cut them off of the stone. But notice something, uh, and I noticed a lot of people on social media were confused about something here. We always mention this as one of Nolan's finds, but you can hear the team talking here about how this is a lost ring bolt, talking about it like they're finding something that was, you know, that was seen but then lost to time. Now, why is that? Sim very simple. Fred, even though he said he found them, and, I, and more than one for sure, he apparently never could produce them. Now, the story, at one point, you even hear say, somebody say, let's get Tom Nolan over because he must have seen these. He actually saw these. So weirdly, Fred found ring bolts in the swamp, maybe, maybe not, cut them off, and then lost them? It's, it's a weird story. There's a lot of this in, Fred, in Fred's history. Um, he just never could produce them. So... I think Gary refers to this as a little piece of Oak Island history, and he's absolutely right. Because, you know, there are a lot of people who are skeptical about some of this stuff, especially things like this where somebody says, I found them but can't produce them. See the 90-foot stone, right? We know what it says. <laughs> Here is what it looked like. But we can't actually show you it because nobody can produce it for you. That was the same here with this ring bolt. We took Fred's word for it for all these years that he actually found those things. But we, I think in the back of everybody's mind, nobody really knew for sure. Now we have some confirmation of this story, of this ring bolt that um, was here in the swamp. And amazingly, it seems to be intact. Um, this is a great little confirmation of this old claim. And if this is what it is, and let's clean it up and take a good look at it and get some more idea of what it could be, um, this is a great little find. This is something we should not find in the swamp, and that's the kind of evidence we're looking for, right? All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the Digging Oak Island podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the show as well. Uh, anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you do enjoy our little program here, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps to get the word out on the show and bring more listeners to the show. Thank you to everyone who's done that already. I really do appreciate the kind words and you taking the time to do that for us. Also, if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, you can do so via email at diggingoakisland at gmail.com. I always like to give this little warning. 
Keep in mind, if you send me an email or message, I just might answer it here on the future podcast. So if you don't want your message read aloud to the listening audience, just make a note of that for me. Don't forget, you can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. We are at Digging Oak Island. Go over there and give us a like or a follow. It would be much appreciated. It's a great way to follow the podcast and a great way to interact with other listeners of the show. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.